So this is a, this is the keynote address. Is that right? This is the keynote. Great, great. If you uh, brought a Bible with you, I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. I'm going to go ahead and bow bow in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Our Father God, how grateful we are for your work around the world. How exciting it is to hear the stories and meet the various missionaries that this church is involved with. And we thank you, Lord, that we all can be a part of your work, your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us now from your word, that your truth would ring in our hearts that you would cause us to grow and be more like Jesus Christ and that you would give us a boldness for your truth. And if there are any who do not know you, Lord, that your spirit would also speak to their hearts, awaken their hearts, and turn them towards you. We thank you for the partnership we have in your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are excited to be here, and uh, we are also uh, enjoying our ministry in South Africa. There are times where people will, um, I meet people and they say, we're so grateful for you be willing to be there, but really that is where our heart is at, that's what we enjoy doing, that's where our passion is at, and uh, so for us, it's uh, we're doing what we love doing, it's a great combination, uh, people like to see us there and we like being there. But um, for the past eight years now, I've been pastoring in Johannesburg, South Africa. My wife is originally from South Africa. I met her at the church that I'm currently pastoring. And besides ministering to our own congregation, uh, we have been involved in a, a church plant or a Zulu-speaking church plant in South Africa, uh, not far from where our church is at, just a few miles away. And we also helped to look after 24 abandoned HIV-positive babies. Uh, Beth Mack is working with us in South Africa. Many of you know her. I know she's a member of this church. And uh, one of the exciting things about that ministry is that uh, 70% of the babies that we bring into our homes later test negative to the HIV virus. We have... Um, uh, uh, 24 children uh, that we have can we have four homes each home can hold six children and we have two requirements for children who come to our homes uh, one is that they are uh, abandoned and the second they have to test positive for the HIV virus and many of them are left in hospitals some of them are left on street corners or in garbage uh, uh, pails and it um, is a real um, privilege to be able to take these children that are literally thrown away and love them and care for them as we would want our own children to be cared for if they didn't have parents. And um, we uh, have found that after about three months, we were able to give them a second test. And because the first test is not the most accurate test that you can give a child to test whether it has HIV, uh, 70% of the babies that have been abandoned later test negative to the HIV virus. And we're able to put those up for adoption, and those babies get to be put into loving homes, and uh, half of them are in homes in Europe and the other in South Africa. And it's just been a real privilege. We look at that as a, a work of, of redemption, of taking a physical life and being able that's been thrown away and being able to help see it redeemed and given to a family that desperately wants to look after the child. And uh, we just feel privileged to be a part of that. We've had more than 100 children come through our 
our homes. And I know that Beth sends her greetings to you all and wishes that she could be here at this time. Seven years ago, we uh, had a young man in our church, a South African man who uh, came here to Southern California and went to the Master's Seminary and studied for four years and came back and became our associate pastor of the church there in Johannesburg. And uh, we ended up, um, uh, I've been working alongside him for the past three years now. And uh, we are getting ready to go back in June to South Africa, and we are going to hand over the church and the work and everything that we've been doing for the past eight years there in South Africa to that uh, pastor and to the elders who've been established in that church. And we are excited about moving to another country in Africa. We are planning to move to Malawi, which is two countries north of South Africa. And our desire is to go there and help establish a, a church there. There is a group of over 100 people who don't have a pastor, who've never had a pastor. They've been meeting in the chapel at a Bible college, and they've invited us to come, and I will serve as their first pastor. And uh, one of the things that we also excites us about this opportunity is that uh, over the years, we've seen a number of South Africans come to seminary here in California, be, study at Master's Seminary, and return to uh, South Africa. We've also seen a number of missionaries come over, and now there are over 20 Master's Seminary graduates in South Africa. And we've been a part of really a whole movement of biblical exposition. And these are just kind of the people in the circles that I run with, people that I really went to seminary with or know who have graduated from the same seminary that I went to. And so we also have a, a, a seminary in South Africa where we're training African pastors. We have about 80 African pastors attending that seminary. It's called Christ Seminary. And um, one of our desires in Malawi is to identify 20 African men, 20 Malawian men, who want to be pastors, and we want to send them down to South Africa and get them trained to be missionaries in South Africa and then bring them back up to Malawi and help them to establish churches and plant churches all over the country of Malawi. That's one of our goals, and we ask you to pray for us in that. And, and that really excites us because we, we see that sort of as the second stage of missions. Missionary work is, is uh, you know, uh, gathering people, uh, g- sending people from this country or from this area to um, you know, Africa and helping them to establish churches there. And the second phase is when the churches in Africa start sending out missionaries to other African countries. And we feel like that's the direction that the Lord is leading us. So we ask you to pray for us in that. And in many ways, I feel eager to do that much as Paul was eager to proclaim the gospel. If you take a look at Romans chapter one, verse 15, he says there, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. His eagerness was fed by the fact that he was looking forward to share the gospel in a place of great need. It's invigorating to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that delivers unbelievers from the wrath that is to come. You can imagine that if someone here this evening had discovered the cure to a disease like HIV AIDS... Or if someone here had discovered the cure to the biggest killer in Africa, which is malaria. And they said, we have a cure. And we asked for volunteers to go over and and share the good news that there's a cure to a terminal disease like AIDS or like malaria. How exciting that would be to see people who normally uh, a million people a year dying to malaria alone. Imagine saying we have a vaccine. There is a cure. 
how exciting it is to proclaim the gospel of Christ because many of you are aware that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest cure in the world because it offers a cure for sin. Jesus Christ paid the price. Sin is, a, is like a terminal disease in many ways. Every one of us a sinner and every one of us because we have sinned against a holy God. We all deserve to, to die. We all deserve to spend an eternity suffering in hell because there is nothing good that you as a sinner can do to earn your own salvation. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, even the holiest prayer that I ever did pray, that alone was, had enough sin in it to condemn me for eternity. Isn't it true that Sometimes our sinful motives taint so much of everything that we do. But I want to point out to you this evening that it is exciting, rewarding, and exhilarating to share with those the truth of the gospel message, those who have never heard it or never understood it. You can understand how exciting it would be to proclaim the gospel of Christ. But there is something confusing about Romans 1.16. And that is when you come to Romans 1.16, Paul says, he makes a negative statement. He uses the word not. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if the news is so good, we may ask the question, why is Paul defending himself by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Why doesn't he rather say it positively? I'm overjoyed to have another opportunity to share the gospel or I'm honored to share the gospel. But instead, he says it negatively. I am not ashamed. I mean, can you imagine if you had the cure to AIDS or the cure to malaria and you go over to Africa and you're saying to people, I'm, I'm not going to be ashamed to, to tell them about this. You wouldn't say that. Why is it, do you suppose, that we who glory in the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ are sometimes ashamed to proclaim that truth. By way of introduction, and this is really kind of an introduction not only for what I'm sharing tonight, but for tomorrow evening, I'd like to suggest two reasons why Christians are sometimes ashamed to preach the gospel. Two reasons why Christians are ashamed to preach the, preach the gospel. And the first reason is this, the world laughs at those who proclaim the gospel message. The world ridicules those who proclaim the gospel. First Corinthians one seventeen says Christ did not. Paul writes Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That word foolishness is the same. We get the same word moron from it. It's moronic. Those who are perishing think that the gospel is foolishness. Many people in Corinth who heard Paul must pre preach must have thought he was a simpleton. Generally, those who spoke in the, about religion on the streets of Corinth spoke with great eloquence. and They used a style of logic that appealed to the intellect of religious thinkers. It was entertainment of the day. But when Paul spoke, there was nothing about the way he spoke that made someone say, wow, this guy really has a way with words. No one walked away from the message and said, that was so deep that my intellect was quite stimulated. No one walked away and said, wow, his rhetoric was really entertaining and I learned 42 new vocabulary words from him. 
And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, he says, Brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. You see, when Paul went to the Corinthians, when he went to Corinth to preach, he had just been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been run out of town in Thessalonica and Berea. He was scoffed at at Athens. So you can understand why he may be physically weak. You could just imagine the kind of interview process that you would go through with the Apostle Paul if you wanted to hire him to be your next pastor. Can you imagine the committee interviewing Paul and saying, Paul, we look, we see from your resume that you've moved around quite a bit. What makes you think that you will stay at our church for any great period of time? And Paul would say, well, you see, uh, I pretty much stay in a town until um, uh, people start throwing rocks at me and chasing me out. Oh, I see, Paul. Well, uh, would you describe your preaching ability? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to describe my preaching ability. Um, I'm weak. I'm fearful. And generally, I shake. Possibly, it could be from the seriousness of the message that he says that, but it could just also be possible that because the last time he preached that message, they took him to a pole and beat him afterwards. People ridicule, laugh at, think it's moronic when you preach the true gospel. A second reason why Christians are often ashamed of the gospel is because the world is offended by the message of the gospel. The world is not only laughs at those who preach it, but they are offended by the message. You see, the good news is that Christ died for your sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Part of sharing the good news is also sharing, recognizing, having people recognize that they themselves are sinners, and people don't like to recognize their own sin. People don't like to be called sinners. Even worse than that, people don't like to be told that they need to abandon their sin. Most people would like to find another way. Perhaps a way that would allow them to keep their secret pet sin so that they can gratify their worldly lusts without ever having to acknowledge that they're really doing something wrong. Or some people would like to think that they could have their own way to pay for their sins. They almost have an attitude of, uh, I don't want somebody else to, I don't want to take anybody's charity, you know. I'll pay for my sins. I'll make it right. But when you tell them that there is no other way except for by faith in Jesus Christ, when you share with them Acts 4.12 that says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, they are offended. I was a youth pastor in Seal Beach for a number of years just down the coast here in the town that I grew up in. And uh, while I was pastoring, I had a young man in our youth group who his parents didn't go to our church. And one Sunday, I gave him a ride home, and uh, his parents were glad to meet me. And they said, we are very glad that our son is in your youth group. Uh, we, we, we think it's great that he's learning about the Bible. But really, our desire is that he will eventually learn about all religions. 
We want him to take the best of Christianity and the best of Hinduism, the best of Buddhism and the best of Islam and, 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 and really make his own religion. I, and I explained to them, I said, that sounds very interesting, but the problem with that is that not all religions can be true. I said, because Jesus Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to me but by... Uh, sorry, I'm the way, the truth, life, no man comes to the Father except through me. I said, so either Jesus Christ was wrong or all those other religions are wrong. And they looked at me and they said something. Perhaps you've heard somebody say this. They said, well, that might be true for you. But that's not necessarily true for us. And I, I, I listened to that and I said, wait a minute. It sounds to me like you are saying that I could say, for example, that one plus one equals two. And that you could say, for example, that one plus two equals two. And somehow we both could be right. And they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, that's exactly what we believe. And we've never heard it explained so well. <laughs> they didn't want to hear the message because the message is offensive. In John fifteen twenty, it says, remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. I must confess, I really have no idea what true persecution is. I've never experienced it firsthand in the sense of being beaten like Paul was. Even though I have no idea what it's like, I've never met a believer, whether they've been persecuted or not, who, has, who can say that they have never been ashamed of the gospel. There's just something about us that sometimes we want to be men pleasers. We want people to like us. We don't want people to feel offended. And so there are times where we are ashamed of the gospel. Every Christian struggles at times with timidity. Every Christian at one time or another acts as though he's ashamed of the gospel. And for those who say that they've never been ashamed of the gospel, Martin Lloyd-Jones has suggested that Perhaps it's not because you're an exceptionally good Christian, but rather your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. Undoubtedly, Paul at times would have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. He had warned Timothy not to be timid when it came to the gospel message. But when it came down to the time for Paul to go to Rome, and perhaps people would have expected him to say, Rome... I don't want to go there because if I'm getting beaten up everywhere else, I mean, that's for sure I'm going to be imprisoned and beaten. But he didn't say that at all. He, he, he just immediately said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. And this passage in Romans 1.16, we find three accomplishments of the gospel that will motivate you to be like Paul. Three accomplishments of the gospel that will motivate you to be bold in your proclamation. That will help you to be unashamed of gospel proclamation wherever God has placed you. The first one is this. The gospel is a demonstration of God's power. Or the gospel demonstrates God's power. In Romans 1.16 he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. When we say that God is omnipotent, we are saying that he is all-powerful, that he has the strength to do all things. 
And when it comes to demonstrating power, you want to find about, found out, find out about the means of that demonstration and the measurement of that demonstration. Let me give you an example. Suppose that I told you I was an expert in martial arts. I'm not really, but suppose that I told you that. Some of you probably knew that already. You would say, okay, great. Give us a demonstration. Let's measure it. In fact, you may even know off the top of your head that the world record for a karate chop is 16 cement slabs, each slab being about two inches thick. And so you would say, if you're really the world's greatest uh, expert in martial arts, let's measure that. And you would get 16 slabs out here and you'd say, okay, go ahead, karate chop it. When we talk about the way that God has chosen to demonstrate his power, the means is the gospel. And the measurement is that he changes the human heart with it. In fact, the gospel is the only tool, the only thing in this world that will ever change somebody's heart. The problem is that man's heart is full of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed to us the kingdom of, his, of the son of his love. Romans 13.12 says the night is nearly all over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is bound to sin. In fact, without Christ, you cannot help but sin. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. And since the unregenerate heart is so bound to sin and there's nothing that you and yourself can do to free yourself from the chains of sin because there is no power that you have to free yourself from the bondage of sin. Just like the Ethiopian cannot change his skin, just like the leopard cannot change its spots, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And the only thing that is able to deliver you from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin is the power of God. He takes the guilty and he declares them to be righteous. He removes darkness and he shines his light. He releases you from slavery to sin and cleanses your heart from the inside out. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 6:17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. God's power is demonstrated with the gospel. A second accomplishment of the gospel that we see in Romans 1:16 is that the gospel delivers us from God's wrath. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There are some who mistakenly think that God and the devil are equals. There are some who have an idea, it's a wrong idea, that God is the good one and the devil is the bad one and they are equals, battling it out in some cosmic battle. It's one, it's wrong thinking in many ways, but one of the clear errors is that the devil is not the one who should be blamed for your sin. You are the one who is held responsible for your sin. 
The scripture presents us as sinners. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the counsel of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too also formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging our desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is why Romans 1.16 is such a phenomenal verse, because when you stand before God to be held accountable for your sins, you can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say I have the power to free myself from my sin. But Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation because it saves you from God's wrath. You ever think about that question? What are we saved from? We are, God saves us from his own wrath. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a God who will not tolerate sin. He is the God who will not be in the presence of sin. And yet he is able to declare people righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, through Christ's atoning work on the cross, and save them from his own wrath. If you have your Bibles, just turn with me to Romans 5. Take a look at a verse that may be familiar to many of you, but... Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The good news of the gospel is that sinners like you and me can be redeemed. We can be saved. We can be washed cleaned and we could be rescued and delivered from the wrath that we deserve. There are only two possibilities for your sin. Either God will pour out his wrath on you one day and you will pay for your sin for eternity. Or God will take your sins and he will apply them to the cross on which he poured out his wrath already on Jesus Christ. Not because Christ sinned, but because you sinned, because I sinned. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He was sinless, therefore he never deserved to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified so that those who would trust in him could have their sins paid for in full. And his work on the cross was a complete work. It was a finished work so much so that he could declare it is finished. And those who place their faith in Christ. I'm not talking about just a cognitive decision. I'm not talking about just saying with your mind, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. I'm talking about giving your life to him, committing your life to him, and trusting in his work on the cross by faith. That his work on the cross actually paid for your sins. That your sins were placed into his account, and his righteousness is now placed into your account. And that someday... You'll be able to stand before a holy God in joy, in peace, as if you were holy. In fact, 
you will be holy because you will have Christ's righteousness. Well, we can see clearly from Romans 1.16 that it demonstrates the power of God and it delivers from God's wrath. But a third accomplishment of the gospel that will motivate you to proclaim it without shame is that the gospel divides God's faithful from the unrighteous. It divides the faithful from the unrighteous. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The fact that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Greek demonstrates the universality of God's gospel. It is not just for one people group. It is for the entire world. And this is the way that it has been planned since the beginning. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Malachi 1 verse 11, it says, for, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord's of, Lord of hosts. You may recall in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples at first, he sent them only to the lost house of Israel. But later there was a change in the general pattern. They were to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there is no racial barrier. There is no ethnic barrier. There is no national barrier. There is no economic barrier that keeps people from salvation. It is not limited to the rich or the poor, to the educated or to barbarians. But there is one dividing line. There is one line of separation because not everyone will be saved. Salvation is only for those who believe. It is the power of God to salvation, says Romans 1.16, for everyone who believes. That word belief in the Greek has the idea of trusting in, relying on, having faith in. And the tense of it is quite interesting. It's in a continuous form. It's actually a participle, present active participle, which means it's, it's a, a, those who have genuine faith, it's not that they just had faith at one time. It's not past tense that they had faith. They're continually demonstrating faith. They are believing. They are a believing people, those who have been saved, those whose hearts have been changed by the power of the gospel are a faithful. They are a believing people. It's not just that they were moved at one time back way back in their history, in their early in their in their early days. And they heard an emotional message, but now they have no demonstration of that belief. It's that they continually and actively trust God. They believe in the word of God. They're fed by the word of God. They grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through their understanding of the word of God. They are obedient to the word of God. They love having fellowship with other people who love the word of God. The gospel demonstrates God's power. 
The gospel delivers from God's wrath. And the gospel divides God's people from those who do not have genuine faith. I would like to close this evening with a story about a martyr from the 16th century. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Light from Old Times, has written about the death the deaths of 288 martyrs who were burned in Britain during a four-year period during the reign of Bloody Mary. And in detail, he gives an account of 11 noteworthy martyrs. The primary reason why these men were killed is they would not agree with the Roman Catholic doctrine of real presence. The doctrine of real presence was the belief that during communion, a sacrifice was being made. That actually during a communion service, the blood, the cup literally was turned into the blood of Jesus. His actual blood was there and his body was there in presence in the bread. You might say, okay, that sounds a bit strange, but is this really worth being burned at the stake for? Ryle notes that because the the Romish doctrine of the real presence strikes at the very root of the gospel, it was worth dying for. It strikes at the root of the gospel message because if Christ needs to be present every time we have communion, if it's not merely a remembrance, but if he actually needs to be sacrificed again and again and again, it tells us that his work on the cross was not complete. He didn't really pay at all. So it adds something to the gospel message. It's a different gospel. In fact, it also strikes at the root of the gospel because it denies the priestly office of Jesus Christ because you need someone else to administer a sacrifice to you. Christ is no longer the one mediator between God and man. And so these men who were forced to sign a a statement saying that they believed in what Roman Catholic Church taught and what the Pope taught, or they would die. Many of them chose to die. But it wasn't easy for some of them to really be unashamed. And Ryle is honest enough in his book to write about the account of Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1550s. He's often remembered as the one Christian at that time, Christian leader who capitulated. He gave in. He surrendered to the pressure of Bloody Mary and the Catholic priests. When he was given the choice between signing a statement that he denied the Protestant beliefs or dying, he took a pen in his right hand and he signed the statement. Ryle wrote that Cranmer quote, was the only English reformer who for a time showed the white feather and for a time shrank from that, from dying for the truth. I admit that he fell sadly. I do not pretend to extenuate his fall. It stands forth as an everlasting proof that the best of men are only men at best. I only want my readers to remember that if Cranmer failed as no other reformer in England failed, he also had done what no other reformer had done. You see, in a fiendish act by the Roman Catholic Church, they did something that gave Cranmer a second opportunity. 
Instead of letting him live, which in all likelihood, if they would have done that, he would have died in obscurity and no one would have ever really read about him in an honoring way or for any of the good things he'd ever done. But they decided that even after he recanted, even after he signed the statement saying that he would recant of his Protestant beliefs, they decided to burn him at the stake anyways. But before burning him at the stake, they decided to bring him before a church and have him share about his recantation one more time. And so on March 21st in 1556, Cranmer was brought out by the Roman Catholic Church to St. Mary's Church at Oxford. So the whole world could hear him deny his former teachings that they were false and hear him say that the Pope's doctrines were, were true. He addressed the entire assembly at great length and everyone could see how he was in mental anguish over his decision to recant. And in a surprise move, at the end of his message, he astounded his enemies by renouncing his former denials. And he declared the Pope to be against Christ. And he rejected post, the Popish doctrine of the real presence. And Ryle wrote, such a sight was never seen by mortal eyes since the world began. And he's quoted as saying this, And for as much as my hand has offended in writing, Contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be first to be burned. And they immediately ran to the pulpit and they grabbed him. They drove him out into the streets. And people brought wood and stacked it around him. And he was tied to a post. But boldly and undauntedly, he stood there at the stake while the flames started to come up around him. And he put his left hand in the air towards heaven. And he took his right hand and put it directly on the flames so that they curled around his fingers. And he proclaimed this unworthy right hand. He was a man who died unashamed of the gospel. The gospel truly is the power of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that it delivers us who trust in you from the wrath which we deserve. We thank you, Lord, that it divides us from those, the, who, the people that we used to be, people without genuine faith, and our hearts go out to those who do not know. Help us all, Father, not just the missionaries, but help every member of this church who knows you, every person here tonight who knows you, to proclaim with boldness the truth of the gospel every opportunity we have. We know the cure for sin. Let us not be ashamed when we are tempted to not say anything because we'll be thought of as a fool. Help us not be ashamed when we think we might upset someone because of the message of your truth. But in a loving way, help us to proclaim the truth so that your name would be exalted, so that your glory could be seen in the power that changes hearts which are bent against God until you turn them towards yourself. We're thankful, Father, that your gospel changes hearts. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.